Welcome to Perspectives On, where we're giving the world a voice. We are a faith-based social justice forum where individuals give their perspectives on various topics. It's an opportunity to express their viewpoint, their stance, and their angle on justice issues affecting the community and globally. Each episode features guests presenting their perspective on things like climate change, the church, urban farming, and food insecurity, all through a unique faith lens. Come check us out. Give us your perspective. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Perspectives On, where we're giving the world a voice. I'm Lara Lane White, and I am your host. According to the World Food Program, the COVID-19 pandemic could double the number of low and middle income people impacted by food insecurity by the end of 2020. So given that, what that means is that we will have to definitely do some things in terms of localizing our uh, our food production. So on tonight, while we have uh, our some guests that will uh, can speak to uh, what we're going through in terms of the food pandemic, I'm sorry, in terms of what's, how the COVID-19 has affected food security as well as food availability. Uh, so we have four of three or really four uh, farmers on, on tonight, of persons that can speak to, uh, given their knowledge base and their expertise, uh, they can speak to a lot of what's going on with uh, with our food security. Uh, Siobhan, could you start out by uh, introducing yourself? Tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and what your organization does. Great. Um, I first want to thank you for extending the opportunity um, to come on your platform and to talk about the work that we are doing in Baltimore with the Black Church Food Security Network. So, hi, everyone. Um, I am Siobhan Terrell, the Deputy Director of the Black Church Food Security Network. And the Black Church Food Security Network is a group of churches, a coalition of churches that's building a community-based food system that is in partnership with Black farmers. Um, and we do this through our two main programs, Operation Higher Ground and the Soya to Sanctuary Market. So Operation Higher Ground is where we, um, the Black Church Food Security Network, help churches start community gardens, um, on church-owned land. And why do we help them start community gardens on church-owned land? Um, because a lot of Black communities experience food insecurity. Um, and a lot of Black communities have churches within their community that has the resources to really anchor their community. And I can talk more about church resources and how the church can recenter itself to anchor the Black community. Um, as well as our second program is the Soil to Sanctuary Market, is where we transform parking lots, we transform dining halls, multi-purpose rooms, into many farmers markets. And we bring in black farmers as well as black owned businesses to those farmers, uh, farmers markets. So they come in and sell their produce in a niche market um, to black communities. 
And in a nutshell, that is the work of the Black Church Food Security Network. Um, we have a lot of budding opportunities and we just launched a national campaign. So I would love to speak more about that um, throughout the panel discussion. Um, so thank you for the opportunity. Of course, of course. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Monica, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about uh, you know, what you do and uh, so our viewers can know who you are. I think you have yourself muted. Monica, I think you have yourself muted. Okay, so while while Monica works on that, Carol Boyd, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, I think you have yourself muted too. Let's see here. Wait till we're right back to this is my husband. Go ahead, Karen. Can you hear me now? I can hear you. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Go ahead. I'm Kara Brewer Boyd with the National Black Farmers Association. Dr. John Boyd is my husband, civil rights activist who led the fight at USDA for the black farmers uh, discrimination case, uh, also known as the Pickford uh, lawsuits and uh, NRA black farmers discrimination case. We have a program, it's called We Grow Farmers and uh, I use the hack. Let's get growing. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you, go ahead. Can you hear us? Can you hear us, Kara? I can. Yes. Okay. All right. So, so Monica, yes, I can. I can hear you fine. Okay. Great. Okay. So, Monica, are you? Uh, can you hear me? It looks like it, it looks like you have. Let's see here. Can you hear me? It looks like you have yourself <laughs> muted also. Yeah, we can't hear you. Okay. Can we hear? We we can't hear you. Okay, well we'll just we'll move on to and while we get that settled, um, Siobhan, can you um, you know just kind of start out? We have a there was a question um, that we had um, re relating to uh, how the church can respond to some of the. Um, the food security issues. And I think, you know, the, or, the Black Church Food Network is really kind of leading the pack and, set, and really being a model for a lot of different organizations. Uh, can you talk about um, how the food, uh, how, how you guys can respond, have, have responded, and what can churches do to respond to the pandemic? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Mm -hmm. And I love how you said that we are kind of leading um, the model. Um, in actuality, we actually are standing on the shoulders of our ancestors, um, specifically Vernon John's mother and father Devon and Albert Clay. Um, uh, collectively, they together um, had the vision of the Black Church Food Security Network. Uh, but of course, they had it in their own time um, as well as in their own. So, for example, um, Vernon Johns, who was the predecessor of Martin Luther King at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. So one thing about him, he was a farmer and he was a preacher. So on Saturdays, he farmed the soil. He harvested, I mean, he farmed the land. Um, he harvested his crops. On Sunday, he preached a good word and directly after church. He had his farmer's market um, where people from the community, people from his congregation were able to sell, purchase the produce that he have that he grown um, at his farm. So that's where the idea of the church market came from, because when you think about it, like I mentioned before, it's like the church, black church historically has always been the anchor in the black community, um, has always been a place where black folks can come in and get resources and get their needs met. Um, the black church has always been um, the institution that practiced agency um, for the black community and spoke about black community needs. Um, I think about historically, like the role that the black church has paid, played. Like I went to two HBCUs, um, Tuskegee University and Morgan State University. And both of those um, universities have roots from the black church. Um, Booker T. Washington, um, when the students was actually building the bricks to build the building, um, Booker T. Washington was teaching the students at a black church. Um, and then the black church gave uh, birth to so many other institutions such as credit unions, mutual aid societies, um, like hospitals, like banks, <laughs> whatever we need, um, the Black church has always been that community anchor to provide that. So the Black Church Food Security Network is, we're standing on the ancestors, we're standing on the shoulders of our ancestors who created the pathway to us. Like Vernon Johns had the answer, Mother and Father Divine, in the midst of the Great Depression, they partnered with farmers in upstate New York um, to come in and sell their produce to um, corner stores that they actually own to sell it to the uh, community. Um, so that's food distribution, and that's an arm of the Black Church Food Security Network, because when you think about the assets that the Black church as an institution has, such as commercial kitchens, such as land, such as um, church vans, uh, we definitely have the resources to have a hand in every phase of the food system. So that's what we're doing. We're, we're, we are inspired by the people who laid the groundwork and the framework for the Black Church Food Security Network. So only thing we're trying to do is just carry the torch <laughs> during our generation and connect some of the dots that our ancestors had laid for us. I love it. I love it. I love it. That's that's awesome. That's awesome. Monica, uh, I, I, I think your mic... I'm getting a message uh, on my side that your mic isn't connected. Uh, so did, you have to give you, you have to give uh, StreamYard access to your mic in order for us to hear you. Are you able to hear us? Can you hear us? Okay, you can hear us. We but we can't hear you. And actually, I'm showing that um, you know your mic is is uh, it's just not connected to our to our network, so we're not able to hear you. 
Kara, uh, are you, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great, great. Okay. So um, you guys are, what can I say? Uh, you and your husband are, are what, what we consider in, in our community the last of a dying creed of African-American farmers. I mean, I mean, real, I mean, true to life farmers where you, you know, where this is, uh, you're working the land. It's not just, you're not just, you know, managing a couple of acres of land. You guys have almost uh, up to 1300 acres of land. And so um, highly respected for your contributions to the realm of farming. And so what I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm curious to know uh, how you felt, uh, how you're feeling about, especially during the pandemic, the, the response from the, uh, from the, from the USDA to help and assist farmers. What, what do you think about that? How, what is, what is your position on that? Well, as always, uh, black farmers and minority farmers are underrepresented and they are uh, marginally served. Uh, the resources just never seem to make it to our communities. Uh, when you look at some of the food assistance programs or individuals that were awarded those grants, uh, won $35 million who didn't even own a truck, had never distributed food before, didn't have a cooler, you know, those kind of things are alarming. Um, and when you look at food and uh, the SNAP system and um, the availability and what's driving the local food system and local food production, um, you know, USDA and the secretary that we have now has said, you know, get big or go home. They're not really interested in increasing local food production and local food hubs. Um, and so my hat's off to the Black Church Food Network. I've been watching some of the work. And, uh, you know, one of our hashtags is let's get growing. And we try to encourage people who are growing and producing uh, potential farmers, new and beginning farmers, to get on grid with USDA. No, it's not perfect. Yes, we have a lot of issues ongoing with USDA, but those are your taxpayer dollars. And those need to be working for us and working in our communities. And the only way that we can do that is if we engage in that system. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're still beating the pavement really hard, beating the dirt, uh, you know, hopefully uh, improving soil health, but getting more uh, young people, young, more young black farmers and farm families back into food production um, with very limited resources. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, um there has been right even right here in Georgia, um, in in Albany, where uh, I don't I, th I think it did make national news where we had uh, a large uh, number of persons that had attended a funeral. Well, anyway, the COVID nineteen affected that community tremendously, and so when certain programs became available through the USDA, they were not able to take advantage. A lot of the CSAs and the cooperative, the co-ops uh, and a lot of the smaller farmers in that area were not able to take advantage of those programs because they did not have the numbers uh, of the population size uh, enough to participate in the, in the programs. And, and, you know, we were all kind of shocked at that. So, I mean, that's just another example of, of what you're talking about in terms of, you know, the USDA response, or in this case, in their case, a lack of response. Um, so what recommendations 
because uh, because obviously um, based on what we're learning, uh, what we're learning in the past week or so, there's a there's we're we're we're, we're headed to a second wave, and the weather's getting warm, and so now we're we're looking at um, large producers uh, of large food producers being impacted because their workers are being infected, and so they're having to shut down. So. Um, but what I wanted to know from, you know, get your perspective on is how, what, what can we do ahead of time to, to mitigate that impact? Uh, as a large farmer yourself, I know you probably have a lot of employees. Uh, and so um, what, what are you guys doing in terms of uh, trying to uh, mitigate the impact of uh, COVID-19 on your production uh, coming up for the summer time? Well, unfortunately we are, uh, Still considered a small-scale producer. Um, we basically have five farm workers here, um, so social distancing on our farm is, you know, not too much of an issue. Um, yeah. But where we saw the greatest impact um, is in food security, um, access to seeds, operators' loans, uh, USDA offices were closed for some time, and not doing in-office in meetings. So that put a lot of farmers behind on getting um, what they needed uh, to put their crops in the ground. And there were some programs where farmers were actually compensated to till those crops in the ground as opposed to donating them to food banks and other things. And so we have to go back as people of color and look at systemically how access to food has uh, impacted our communities because we know if you want to control the man, you control the food. And so as an act of resistance and an act of sovereignty um, and self-governance, we need to continue to move towards capacity building and infrastructure so that we can grow and produce our own food, controlling our food sources. Um, uh -oh, I froze up there. My husband often says if Katrina didn't teach us anything, it told us that, you know, we need to have our own because no one's coming to help us. No one's going to come and rescue us. And my hat's off to the black churches because they're in our communities, they're ground zero. Um, so how do we engage in those small spaces that we have? How do we get people to growing? Um, I did a, a little test plot here the other day. I had some extra tomato that was left over from a salad that we had made. And I cut up that tomato and I planted it outside and now I have tomato plants. And that's what we need to look back and encourage more people to begin to grow and produce, even if it's on a small scale. And if they can't, they don't have access to that land, look at what they have that they can contribute to local farmers, such as coffee grinds, eggshells, banana peeling, some of these things that can go into those composts that can help those farmers um, building that soil health. So those are the things I think that if we look at increasing more local food production, such as the Black Church Network is doing, uh, we're not gonna see that impact as heavily uh, with COVID-19 with a second round, knowing that we need to know how to preserve our food, how to um, take some, leave some, always be some. So those are the things I think that uh, COVID-19 is helping the farmers and those who have been blessed with ancestral knowledge on um, food security um, to work in this food justice work. Awesome, okay. okay. And can I add to that? Sure, go ahead. Um, so I just want to add two <laughs> points. Um, one of my ministries for this year is um, how to make it plain for folks. 
Because a lot of people feel like, um, well, one of the barriers upon entry on growing your own food is you have to have so much knowledge and so much expertise. Um, so one of the things that we did when COVID-19 first hit um, in April and May, had weekly Saturday series for people um, to learn how to grow food. Um, an April series specifically was called Grocery Store Gardening, where we talked about how you can um, regrow like commonly purchased products from the grocery store, like such as herbs. So we talked people about asexual propagation. So if you buy herbs, you can um, Stick it in a cup of water, some roots will grow from it, and then you can replant it. Uh, we taught people about sweet potato slips and uh, white potato eyes, um, how to regrow onions and scallions and different things like that. And I think that's the first ramp, right? We got to be able to um, make it plain for people um, as and, and to speak about the importance, like the systemic um like injustices that's associated with our food system like there's a reason um and there was a choice that was made around like why black folks don't have access to food and that's because of systemic racism um and that's because of a term that we use called food apartheid and food apartheid is the systemic self-destruction um self-destruction of black um, determination to the control your own food system. Um, and that's basically looking at like the marketing that's um, uh, in our neighborhoods that market like McDonald's and Burger King. Um, and that's looking at the placement of where healthy food options are located, as well as that looking at, that's looking at the land. Um, because a lot of land is not a farmable land. Um, so why is it that the land that's located in black communities are toxic? Um, why are there brownfields located in close proximity to our communities? Um, and so that's a, having a greater conversation around like um, the reason why we got to practice sovereignty, the reason why we got to support black farmers, the reason why we got to build our own systems. Um, because it's like whoever controls the food controls the people. Um, and we got to be able to feed ourselves and sustain ourselves through this crisis. Because one thing about being black is like there's always going to be some type of crisis in America. So right now we're calling this crisis COVID-19. But in December, it might be like rising sea levels or in October, it might be Hurricane Katrina or Hurricane, you know, Arnold or whatever they decide to call the hurricane. Right. Um, because we know climate change disproportionately affect black communities, which will disproportionately affect our food supply. Um, so we got to be the CA, be able to see the connections of all of it. That's right. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Monica, can you hear? Can you hear me? Yes. Can you hear me? Oh. Yes. Now, <laughs> yeah, we got you. We got you. We got you. I well, apologize for the technical difficulties. That's okay. That's okay. It happens. I'm just glad that you're able to to reconnect with us because I think uh, you have a lot to bring to this discussion. Uh, one of the reasons, I mean, I, one of the things I wanted to ask you um, because, uh, well, first of all, uh, you didn't really get a chance to introduce yourself. If, if you would, please you know, introduce yourself and tell us about your organization and what it does, please. Okay. Good evening. And thank you, Dr. White, for the opportunity to join this rich discussion this evening. My name is Monica Range, and I am an agricultural lawyer and the director of land retention and advocacy for the Federation of Southern Cooperatives 
land assistance fund. I am based in Atlanta, Georgia, but the Federation is the largest organization serving black farmers in this country. We are have offices in seven states across the deep south. And most people know that the Federation was founded in 1967 as an organization focused on building black communities and preserving rural prosperity. So we have been in the trenches working with black farmers and landowners for over 53 years. And at the core of our mission has been saving black owned land. Most people know that in, in 1910, African-American land ownership in this country was right at about 15 million acres. That number today has dwindled to about 3 million acres. And we are in a fight here oh, to preserve wow. African-American land ownership. And one of the ways that we have found most successful to save Black-owned land is developing successful agricultural cooperatives across the South. Through our agricultural cooperatives, we are able to support small farmers across the Deep South to, number one, establish successful agricultural businesses and to build thriving rural economies. Um, that Those economies are being tested right now as we speak in the midst of this pandemic. And we know that the challenges for rural America have been even greater than some of the metro and urban areas. So the Federation has shifted its focus recently to pandemic relief and recovery. Mm -hmm. And we are on the front line with boots on the ground, assisting small farmers who have been impacted uh, greatly by the pandemic challenges. We know across the board that many of our communities of colors, color have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. We've seen this uh, with our small farmers that we work with who have sustained about a 60 to 70% drop in their sales um, due to the fact that most of our small farmers sell in local markets to restaurants, farmers markets, or other direct sale sources. So these farmers have become most vulnerable in the COVID-19 pandemic. And we have supported our farmers by providing technical assistance on the ground, um, engaging in programs which will allow them access to markets because one of the greatest challenges has been uh, disruptions to our supply chain. And many farmers have produce just rotting in the ground right now, literally. Um, we have been innovative in how we have worked with the USDA to try to ensure that those farmers are able to start some economic recovery. One of the ways that we have done that is uh, we were granted by the USDA the Farmers to Families Food Box Program in Mississippi. Um, that program is through CFAP, and we were able to assist many of the small farmers and cooperatives we work with in getting those uh, getting those produce items boxed and sent to commun low-income communities who have really been impacted by the pandemic and are most at risk for the food insecurity that we're seeing as a result of this pandemic. And to this day, we've been contracted to do up to 24,000 boxes. I think we've gotten out about 16,000 boxes to nonprofits and other organizations across the state of Mississippi. 
But that's just one example of how we're, we are helping to uh, support our farmers during this very tough economic time. Um, we've set up lunch programs across Alabama where farmers are able to help support the local food economy by providing free lunch distribution to school-aged children and families from our EPS training center. So these are a couple of the ways that we are trying to um, assess what is needed economically from our membership and provide that support by putting boots on the ground. Um, we've done this before. We know farmers are some of the most resilient people out there. They've survived droughts and floods and market volatilities. This is just another, uh, another thing that farmers are sure that they'll, they'll come out of. They will survive this. And they continue to get out there every day and work hard. And our job as an organization is to ensure that they have the resources that they need to be successful at this time. Awesome. 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 Uh, and, and you had, you said something, I, you said something that I wanted to come back to, but, um, uh, Kara, you mentioned earlier, and, and I think, and Monica, you just mentioned also that there are farmers out there that are that have um, their their yield is 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 literally you know just kind of rotten in the ground because they can't. Can you explain that? Because I've, I've, I'm and then I'm, I'm hearing that some farmers are actually being paid to leave their um, to leave their produce in the ground. Can you um, elaborate on that just a little bit for those of us who? Uh, are still learning about uh, about the about the farming industry and how that happens, where you have where you grow stuff and then you can't you have to actually leave it in the ground. Can you uh, um, expound on that? Either one of you didn't matter. Sure. Well, well, I'll jump in on that. Um, one of the things, one of the challenges that small farmers often face is they are not set up to do value added processing at the farm. What that simply means is if I grow collard greens, I am relying upon um, selling those collard greens to a wholesaler who is then going to process them, cut them, bag them, and get them to a retail market. So when those wholesalers uh, feel disruption, that disruption also impacts Small, uh, small farmers like the farmers we work with, because unfortunately um, they will not have access to the wholesale markets that are needed to get that produce out of the ground and processed. We know that there is a greater need for us to have processing facilities within communities of color. And so what we have done as an organization over the years, and there are some great examples of this, is we've tried to build those value added processing facilities within communities of color so that the um, cooperatives we support will have those processing facilities within their community and that will help them to actually get, um, uh, develop more stable markets and have a more reliable way to, to market their products. But this, this not only affects specialty growers and vegetable growers, but it also affects uh, uh, our farmers who are farming mostly for, for meat, such as your poultry growers and your uh, cattle, uh, livestock growers. They also rely on meat processors. And right now, one of the challenges they're seeing is that they have animals that are ready to go to market, 
but unfortunately those processors are not available. So that's causing market supply disruption. We're all seeing in our grocery stores how the meat supply is being impacted by the pandemic. So when those growers aren't able to easily access meat processors or vegetable uh, wholesalers, um, they they have very few alternatives. Um, So we're gonna end up with grocery store shelves empty and food rotting in our fields or animals that have to be euthanized because they can't get to markets. Okay. Okay. I think I'm getting it. I think I'm getting it. Carrie, you have something you want to add to that? Well, and, and that goes back to the monopolization and the consolidation of our local food, of our food system, where it, we used to have a lot more local uh, food distribution, food processing, uh, but due to uh, inspection certifications and cost, uh, food became more regionally processed. And so Therefore, you have larger scale processing plants um, located in a few places across the United States, as opposed to more within the local and regional communities. And that's why, you know, it's very important to know your local farmer. It's important to be able to come into those fields and to gleam uh, some of the farms because of their certification, gap certification, uh, may not be able um, to allow the community and public to come into their fields and to help gather that harvest. And we saw three mile long lines at food banks while some large scale white farmers were tilling their food back into the ground. Um, You know, and to me, that's just a crime against nature, it's a crime against humanity um, to know that there were people who were going hungry and there was food um, that could have gone to meet that need. And so, you know, I, my hats off to the churches and to local organizations that are stepping in um, and going out and helping to glean and gather that food and helping to distribute it. Um, because, you know, I don't want to get prophetic here, but, you know, a lot of times people will say, you know, biblical things uh, and that man will starve in the land of plenty. And we've seen that happen lots of times in our communities where people were going hungry, people were starving, but there was food. It just wasn't getting where it needed to get to. Um, for whatever reason. And so more local food production and having individuals to understand, you know, even with their SNAP benefits, that they can do SNAP gardens, they can buy seeds and they can buy plants and they can grow their own food, which is going to expand their food budget. And to understand growing and production and that there's no minimal land size requirement to have a farm. Um, And that, you know, with that business, there's some supplemental income And that's how we can engage uh, individuals from the age of two to three years old, because there's no minimum age to be a farmer and there's no maximum age. So, you know, there's a space for everyone. It's definitely multi-generational and a hands-on time for people to come and dig in and, to, you know, let's let's see what we can do to meet those needs. Because if we can can, if we can preserve, if we can dry, um, you know, these are ways that our ancestors uh, preserved food for many years. And we are in uh, instant society. And a lot of times, some of the conveniences uh, we've seen in this disruption, um, you know, there are remedies and solutions. It may just take a little more time and effort. Um, and it's sometimes, oftentimes, even more conservative. Um, and so if you want to be cost conscious, 
um, like Siobhan said, you know, you can regrow some of your food. Um, there's just lots of things I think that we need to stop and do some self uh, inflection, looking inwards and saying, okay, well, you know, what can I do to help feed myself and my family and my community? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Um, so, so, so just so I can understand this correctly, if when, when we talk about disruptions in the food chain, we're talking about farmers who are growing, um, you know, growing what they're growing or, or, or they may be livestock farmers. And so there's a, the, when the processing part piece of the food chain is that is disrupted, you know, due to, well, in this case, I guess COVID-19, you know, contributed to some of the, um, some of the processing plants closing because, you know, the workers were being affected. Then that's a situation. This just mm -hmm. talk through this. That's a situation where you have uh, growers allowing and just leaving things in their in their on their land without har you know without harvesting. And this is where you have livestock that will that you may have to uh, euthanize. I mean, this is that's that's the impact of it. Am I understanding this correctly? Yes, uh, and I wouldn't euthanize 600 baby chicks. I would give them to someone. <laughs> right. Here a chick, there a chick, everywhere a chick. You know, chick. why kill 600 baby chicks? Because you can't grow them and process them. I mean, to me, that's just, you know, it, it's inhumane. It should have been a crime. Right, right. And then but we... that, of course, I'm a farmer, so... <laughs> So, so Monica, so the, so I do, I did hear something about the, uh, the farm box. I know I'm not saying it correctly. The, the, pro, the farm, farm box program where, yes. um, and, and, and you said that your organization actually helped to, uh, facilitate, you know, getting those, getting that food into the boxes so that it can be distributed. Uh, how did, how did that program in terms of a bill? Cause I know some, I know here uh, there, there there are some parts of Georgia where that that program wasn't available, so mm -hmm. uh, you know for various reasons, uh, and so uh, and I and I understand that your organization, the uh, Southern Cooperative and Land Assistance Fund, uh, was a I guess they were uh, they received a grant. I, I, I'm trying to make sure I understand correctly well, what the role was. Yes. So, so the USDA through the coronavirus food assistance program made a commitment to support farmers by doing two things. Number one, the USDA will provide direct support to farmers and ranchers in the form of uh, direct payments. So that portion of $16 billion will go to farmers based on the losses they are able to um, to show that they sustained during the pandemic. So we always say to our farmers that it's important to have documentation uh, to show what losses you're incurring during this time. But the second piece of that program was another commitment from the USDA to purchase $3 billion worth of fresh produce, dairy, and meat to be packaged in uh, boxes to go out to the community. So the USDA partnered with uh, regional and local distributors, and the Federation was one of those organizations who received a contract, not a grant, but a contract to actually provide that service mm -hmm. to 
communities across Mississippi. So we were initially awarded a contract to provide um, 16,000 boxes to nonprofit organizations, community and faith-based organizations, and other food banks to distribute those boxes within the state of Mississippi. Got you. And you're in Mississippi, right? I am based in Atlanta, Georgia, but we have an office in Jackson, Mississippi. All right, right. Okay. Okay. So, and so the contract that you guys had was for Mississippi, right? Yes. Okay. Got you. Got you. I got you. Okay. So, um, so that, that has been one of the ways for us to really counter the effects of um, oversupply and uh, the unavailability of markets. We were able to work with many of the small farmers we work with and our cooperatives to sort of aggregate a supply that we could use to meet that, meet that demand. So yeah. we have been, um, we've received a first round contract. We've also been re, um, been, been notified that we have also been funded in the second round to do another um, 8,000 boxes. Mm -hmm. Great. That's outstanding, especially in Mississippi, where you, uh, where Mississippi is experiencing uh, some really bad weather. So I would imagine yeah. that, uh, food production there is being impacted as well. Um, this, I just want to move on to... Uh, because we have we, we just we have just about twenty more minutes left, but I want to talk about just a little bit about the global market and 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 Kara. Uh, uh, I know that um, you and Mr. Boyd are um, you know you you guys uh, kind of carry the banner and and when it comes to African American farmers, especially when it comes to the global food supply chain. Uh, you guys are soy farmers. Uh, and, 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 and probably, uh, like I say, you lead the pack in terms of setting that example. Uh, my question though about that is what, from your perspective, how is that, how is the global market, the global food market being affected by COVID-19 from your perspective? Well, it, when we get exporting and importing and the demand and what we saw with uh, PPE, I'll use that for an example, um, personal protection equipment uh, with air freight, uh, those costs skyrocketed. Um, and you're looking at cargo ships, you're looking at a lot of disruption. Um, and with that disruption, it increased, it elevated the cost of uh, logistics and moving uh, cargo uh, around the world globally. And what we've seen uh, in the markets, the corn price was up a little bit, soy is up a little bit. Uh, China just bought some soybeans. Of course, you know, that's the layover from the tariff, um, the tariff war that we had going on. And so looking uh, at the opportunity for our farmers to be able to sell uh, globally, um, right now it looks like the market is going to be there. Um, we just hope that the costs logistically aren't going to impact the farmers because what we're seeing being passed on um, through the global markets and even some regional and local markets is COVID-19 surcharges. Okay. And explain, okay, so, and when you talk about the surcharges, um, how are they justifying the surcharges? Well, you know, everyone says that, you know, uh, they've incurred more costs, so it's being, being pushed down the pipeline. And what we see from some of our dairy farmers, for example, 
um, you know, with our cattle, they're paying 87 cents more for 100 pounds of weight. Okay, so, Claire, I, I think we're losing your audio just a little bit. Okay, is that better? Yeah, what that surcharge is, is passed on to the farmers, like when they sell their cattle or when they're selling their milk or their, their products. Um, and then, like right now, you may go to the grocery and you may see that beef is being sold for $6 a pound. Well, guess what? That farmer didn't get paid three, four dollars a pound. So, you know, there's an end supply markup that oftentimes the farmers uh, don't get reimbursed for. And the way that we're doing now with the farmers selling uh, their produce or their livestock is they're being charged an additional COVID-19 fee um, as a result of some of the process and process closed and maybe uh, the logistics, a little more transportation costs. And so I think that we're going to see that come farther down the line in the fall and into the winter um, with more price increases in the grocery store. Now, you said some great things, but I don't know if everybody could hear. I don't, I don't know if we could hear all of it. Um, we lost your audio just a little bit. I think... Um, uh, can you can you kind of go back to where uh, I do? Or do you have your hand over your microphone? Maybe. No, um, I don't now, know. Maybe that, now we that's can better. Hear. Yes. Okay. So, so talk to us again. Just you know, give us the short version of what you see because you said you had a mouthful. Right. What the farmers are being impacted now um, is with that COVID nineteen surcharge. It's where they're selling their their meat by the pound. Um, and because of logistics, those uh, weights, they're being charged as extra fee. And I think that we're going to actually see it being passed on to the consumers at the retail level um, in the fall and later into the winter. And okay. so, you know, it really isn't the farmers that often control the supply and demand. Uh, it's often the big corporations who are doing the processing and the retailing. It's oftentimes at the retail level, level not necessarily at the wholesale level. Mm. And so, and so, how is the so when we talk about the global, um, how this affects everything globally? You mentioned earlier about um, about uh, uh, the food not being able to be moved uh, on on a global level. Can you kind of repeat that part? Because I think we lost you on that part also. Well, and, and I can say I've had African nations reach out to us because they're already experiencing some shortages in sugar and rice. Okay. And, and so, so, you know, I think that we'll, we'll see that as we move forward, uh, more so with the control, um, because it goes into the system with the regional and the national, the global, uh, because most people aren't buying flour from their grain meal. They're buying it from the retailer at the grocery. I make soybeans. I don't necessarily make soy flour, although I could um, if I was doing that value-added product. And that's one of the issues that we have is that we don't have oftentimes a lot of local food manufacturing and processing going on. Right, right. And but so we should. <laughs> we should. And so from from a global perspective, do you? Do you see how, how far, I mean, I know you said that, that we'll see that impact going into the fall and the winter at the rate we're going with the, with the COVID, um, with the COVID upticks. Do you, 
how long do you think it would take the global markets to recover uh, you know, once that happens from your perspective? Well, there again, you know, um, depending on the farmers getting it into the fields, we've got the weather. Uh, we've already had an enormous amount of rain. And, uh, you know, uh, we still have wheat in the field. We're, we're cutting wheat and trying to plant soybeans at the same time. And we can't plant our soybeans until we get the wheat out of the field. And we can't do any of that because it's raining. Okay. Um, and that's just a little bit of here on the East Coast. And so there are so many variables that go into our food supply chain. Um, and when you're looking at monopolies and things happening on um, a very controlled scale, as opposed to local production and processing, that is where we have the bottlenecks and the logistic problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. gotcha. Because gotcha. I travel uh, an hour and a half, uh, almost two hours to sell our grain uh, to Smithfield, to the grain elevator. And, you know, it's now owned by China and it goes back to North Carolina. So there's a whole, you know, rail system that is moving these commodities in, you know, trucks and taking it places. And, you know, it's just really scary um, that we don't really have control over our own food supply and food production. Mm -hmm. and, and it's already a, a very fragile, fragile foods. Go ahead. Go ahead. Mike. And can I just jump in and, and say that, you know, even before this pandemic, um, you know, farmers were, were really reeling um, with the tariff wars. But, but one of the key issues in our economic markets is, and, and I think this is one of the things that produces the most instability, there is a lack of parity in our pricing, which means that for the average farmer, it costs that farmer more to produce a good than what they can sell it for. And so until we can adequately address the issue of parity, I think we're going to continue to see a destabilization of agricultural markets in this country. And um, I think the impact of that is felt globally. So I agree with what Kara has said. Gotcha. So if we don't, if we, so if we don't, so that's a, that's, that's like a systemic issue that we, it's, it's, I'm processing these things as you, as the two of you are talking about it. It's, it, it sounds like a systemic issue that, and that no doubt uh, affects the African American farmer more so than anybody else. The small farmer, especially, um, sure. particularly the African American farmer. If anytime it costs you more to produce it than than what you're gonna, than what you're gonna uh, be able to sell it for. I mean, you you you're operating at operating at a loss. So that's 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 interesting to find to understand that. Anybody, y'all have anything else y'all want to offer to add to that? Because I'm learning as you as you're explaining it. It's it's, it's something new with each word you guys say. <laughs> and and you think about it, you know, for years American agriculture has relied on support payments from the government. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's because of the parity issue largely. If, mm -hmm. if we shift to a model where we are actually um, receiving parity uh, pricing, um, then, then it, it probably would not be necessary to have those artificial supports um, because the consumer would actually pay what it costs to produce the good. But when consumers demand paying so much less for food, um, then 
that's where we have a parity issue. And then the government has to step in and support the prices that those farmers will receive for those goods. Got you. Got you. It's, it's okay. It's coming. And, and I think a, another uh, issue there is the cost of machinery. You know, a tractor is upwards of $150,000. A combine is $400,000. And you're only going to use the combine to harvest. And then you have to purchase all these implements. And now you're not even talking about fuel and payroll. And so, you know, there's a lot of cost that goes into, you know, farming and, and food and crop production. Um, and so when our farmers can't even repair their equipment because they can't get a manual, you know, these are the things that, you know, policy, I think, could come in and address, which would help alleviate some of the, um, the cost for the farmers. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's, that's great education. Great education. So just to shift to our, our just a little bit to our, our last, the last portion, what, um, there's been a lot of, uh, in corporate America, there has been a lot of, uh, of this rise in, in diversity and inclusion. Uh, and, and so um, I think the atmosphere in America right now is calling, screaming for, um, especially corporations, to be a little bit more diverse in how they engage their businesses. And so one of the things that, um, that we talked about earlier in the week is looking at companies like um, PepsiCo uh, and, the, and, and, and the like to really do more business with African-American uh, organizations and African-American farmers in particular. And one of the things that I wanted to ask, especially uh, John and Karen and Monica, anybody can can join can uh, chime in, is how would that look? Like what what I mean, what, the way corporations work, they tend to you know you when you come to them with an idea, they want to know how you know. Okay, so tell me how how can I do that? And so um, if you would just kind of give an idea of you know how that would look for a corporation. You know, how would they engage that in that type of program? Because it's obviously is something that need, needs to be done. Kara. Well, Dr. Boyd issued an open letter to PepsiCo and others uh, to increase their business with uh, black farmers and others. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's been an ongoing issue. Um, you know, and, and when you hear this, when you read their statements on sustainability, and there's a story about a white farmer whose family has been growing potatoes um, for PepsiCo or Lay's potato chips for 30 years. Uh, but where's that success story for that black farmer? You know, those are the opportunities that we really seek after. Um, John Deere, an equipment supplier, our farmers are buying their equipment, but they won't bring a tractor and display it at our national conference. You know, these are the things that we've called upon for more transparency in uh, corporate America. And I'll go here today um, with you ladies um, and with this audience um, to ask you to go back and to look, and Laurel, I know I've shared this with her before, the 2013 NFL Super Bowl commercial for um, Dodge Ram, the Chrysler Corporation. God made a farmer. In that farmer, in that commercial, Every other farmer is happy. They got new trucks, new tractors. But when they show the black farmer, he's sitting on the back of an old broke down pickup truck holding a noose in his hand. Wow. 
How many people have called on Chrysler to do something? Chrysler actually owns Case International. We've gone to them and, and they did. They supported our scholarship program for three years, you know, and through that we were able to um, fund about, I think, 60, uh, 20 a year uh, scholars uh, to create those job opportunities. And those are the things that when you look at corporate America and you look at some of the things that uh, with racism and things that have been done, and sometimes it was so blatant, just like Bubba Wallace said, it doesn't matter if that noose was that high was fashioned as a noose in 2019, it was a noose. And why are these images, you know, out there in commercials and in TV spots and in public places, um, but it's for fear and intimidation. Um, there are stories, uh, 2019, where a DuPont employee um, found a noose hanging in his office. Uh, these stories have been happening. Not all of them make the front page or the uh, Good Morning America, like Bubba, Bubba Wallace did. But I'm glad that now, um, during this time with the George Floyd and, um, you know, a lot of issues have been brought to the forefront and even during COVID-19. And we have this, and I hope that our voices will continue to be raised uh, to address the inequalities and the systemic uh, racism. Mm -hmm. Yes, as well. Anyone else have anything to offer? Final words? Yeah, let me just add that um, equity and inclusiveness has always been a challenge in our food system. And, you know, there is a hope that we are going to continue to build the strongest and most diverse food system that we possibly can, because we know that it, it really matters in all communities that your food system um, is local, it's diverse, and um, that farmers um, who look like you are growing safe food. Um, we also know that overall, black farmers make up just 5%, 5% overall minority participation in our food system. And black farmers, only 2%. So 5% minorities, 2% black farmers. And what we know is that we've been able to really create some models for success in terms of building relationships with corporations who recognize and value the importance of having black farmers participating in our agricultural system. But here's one of the realities. We have to be prepared for the scale that is required to do business with major corporations. So we have, a, have, have really hit that challenge head on by saying to corporations like Walmart, for example, we can supply you with watermelon, but they don't want a truckload. They want four semis at a time. So what we've had to do is look across our um, supply chain and say, how do we fill these orders such that we can develop relationships and we can be ready to fill the orders when they come from a, a Walmart or a Kroger and they need, uh, you know, not a truckload, but a three, four tons of this item. So if that means we have to go across three states and get four cooperatives involved in growing that produce to fill the order, then we're ready to do that. So when we make those kinds of demands, and I think we should, um, of corporations who are clearly um, in our communities and are capitalizing on the black dollar, we clearly have to have some demands attached to that and ensure that, that what we're saying to them is, we expect that when possible, you will be supporting 
the farmers who grow foods in our communities. Right, right, and we have to be ready to to meet the meet the demand also. So that's that's a very good buy some point. land. Don't buy that Cadillac. Buy some land. And then, <laughs> grow that legacy. If your grandparents left you forty acres, leave that next generation eighty acres. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I want to thank you, ladies, for um, for joining us. Your expertise and your knowledge base uh, have made this uh, this segment uh, have fortified this segment with some great great knowledge, great uh, great information. And the the aim of perspectives on is to create awareness. Uh, it because in the, in the community, especially in the uh, the urban communities, uh, we don't we don't really have a a, a great understanding of the impacts that. Um, that farmers are having on on the supply chain, especially when we talk about minority farmers, uh, African American and brown farmers. Uh, even though um, we we I think I think Monica, I think you said two percent. We represent two percent of the uh, African American farmers. Represent two percent of all of the farmers. And so um, I think each each one of you would, for your different perspectives, uh, Siobhan with the Black Church Food Security Network. And everything that they're doing to try to get uh, churches involved, um, and and certainly uh, in terms of uh, what the cooperatives, the uh, the southern, uh, the uh, southern, the Federation of Southern Cooperative and Land Assistance Fund, what you guys are doing, and Kara, uh, you and Mr. Boy, you and Dr. Boy, continue to represent. On the high level, I know you still say that you're still considered a small farmer. I do. I have heard of uh, some of the bigger farmers having, you know, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 acres, you know, to farm on. But you certainly are, you and Mr. Boy, uh, Dr. Boy, uh, you certainly are um, pioneers. You, you, you lead the pack when it comes to farming from the African-American perspective. And so uh, to everyone out there, I just want to thank you all for listening a special thanks, uh, as usual, to uh, Kisa Public Radios. And as we leave you, please remember those famous words from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, that whatever affects one directly affects us all indirectly. Goodbye, everyone. And thank you. Welcome to Perspectives On, where we're giving the world a voice. We are a faith-based social justice forum where individuals give their perspectives on various topics. It's an opportunity to express their viewpoint, their stance, and their angle on justice issues affecting the community and globally. Each episode features guests presenting their perspective on things like climate change, the church, urban farming, and food insecurity, all through a unique faith lens. Come check us out. Give us your perspective.